Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. I'm John Potthorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, what should we talk about? Not, not much to talk about today. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should just. Uh, I'm going to grab the steering wheel from you right now, John. I'm grabbing the steering wheel from you right now. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Again, you know, the one there are many problems with that one little anecdote. But the other one is. Who tries to grab a steering wheel like that's not uh, that's not safe. You know, I know we've seen it. I saw Jeff Bridges do it in, in the in the old man uh, on 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 Hulu. Uh in in a big fight action sequence but um that's a spy drama and not a not a real life thing anyway uh cassidy hutcherson of course testified yesterday before the um the january 6th committee and uh blew blew the january 6th committee wide open um because what what she's done now is provided a narrative of trump's behavior uh, and and the behavior of Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, and uh, Pat Cipollone, his White House counsel, on the 5th and the 6th of January, that while if you have been watching this very granularly, you could sort of have pieced together, but she, from a vantage point inside the White House, close to Trump, in an office between, or a desk or something in the West Wing, between Mark Meadows and Trump and the Oval Office, uh, claimed to have been sort of a witness to history, both on the ellipse where the January 6th rally happened and in the White House uh, where Trump was returned after the after the January 6th rally and all kinds of stuff happened. Um, and we'll talk about some of the credibility issues involving Cassie Hutchison in a minute, but I think... Noah, the central point here is that this is the thing in relation to this event that has not existed yet, which is a voice as opposed to a kind of pieces and bits of leaking here and there, a voice saying this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And, uh, and Trump was either uh, indifferent to the possibility of violence, uh, uncaring about the possibility of violence, or thrilled by the possibility of violence and supportive of the use of violence. And this comes from somebody in physical proximity to him on January 6th. Does right. that jive with your <laughs> sense of what happened yesterday? Yeah, well, you know me, I have a very narrow focus <clears throat> about, excuse me, I'm a little congested this morning, a very narrow focus about what uh, my the my concerns are what we don't know, what we need to know, which most of which center around the 170 some odd minutes where the Capitol was under siege and the president was doing nothing and power devolved to the vice president in extra constitutional, extra constitutional, extra legal ways. And we finally have a voice from somebody who is, as you said, in earshot, um, which would not constitute hearsay. You know, when she's testifying about things she heard, that would be a third party as though this is a court of law. It's not. But that would be relating a third party's account of things as opposed to what she heard directly. And she was a good witness insofar as when she couldn't actually directly quote somebody, she would routinely say something to the effect of, which is very polished, uh, a way to deliver testimony. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, some of the more disturbing allegations that have yet to be addressed, much less answered, 
um, by the president's allies and such is that she recalls testifying or she recalls telling Mark Meadows, quote, the rioters are getting quote close, they might get in. And he looked at me and said something to the effect of, all right, I'll give him a call, at which point she recalls Pat Cipollone, quote, barreling down the hallway towards our office. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of the rioters got in the Capitol, Mark, we need to go down and see the president now. And Mark looked up, looked up at him and said, quote, he doesn't want me to do anything about it, Pat. People are going to die, Pat Cipollone is recall is recounted telling Mark Meadows, and the blood is going to be on your effing hands. Uh, later, uh, she recalls the uh, president being informed of the hang Mike Pence chants. Uh, Cipollone tells Meadows, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. She further recalled Meadows saying, you heard it, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it, and he doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. This dovetails, or rather has more added significance, because Hutchison further testified that she recalled security personnel telling the president directly and his aides that there were likely to be armed uh, protesters with semi-automatic weapons and body armor in, in the group that was infiltrating the ellipse. And the president instructed his staff to remove the metal detecting magnetometers because it would slow his supporters down. Quote, words to the effect of, again, in Hutchison's couched telling, I don't effing care that they have weapons from the president's voice directly. She's testifies that she was in within earshot. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away, the magnetometers. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from there. Um, if the president didn't believe anybody was doing anything genuinely wrong, he was disabused of that notion 24 hours later when she testifies, Hetchison testifies, that the president and Mark Meadows uh, were encouraging speechwriters to add language, quote, add language about pardoning those who took part in the January 6th riot. Hutchison replies, I did, I, uh, that was uh, Liz Cheney saying that. Hutchison replies, I did hear that. And I understand that Mr. Meadows was encouraging that language as well. Um, this is the central allegation in this whole matter to me. And there's quite a lot of other bombshells that she testified to, some disputed facts that she testified to, much of which are sucking up all the air in the room, in part because there's a real credibility question around her. And if it's a credibility question around her testimony in one area, then it can be extended um, through inference and implication to all of her testimony. Um, that's not how a courtroom works. Everybody sort of wants to play courtroom rules when they like it and not when they don't. Um, nevertheless, none of these allegations that she made have gone answered or really been addressed. And they are central, in my view, to her testimony. Can I can I add to that that the courtroom point is really important because uh, there's there's a one there's a downside as as well as a, a positive side to the way these hearings have been packaged for television viewers and for the American public. Obviously, the positive side is they are trying to tell a story about what happened, stitching together tons of evidence and all the the research they've gathered and the testimony of folks who they've you know put on camera to make it very much more visually appealing, much more viscerally powerful. Um, it's produced like a television documentary. The downside of that is that people sometimes consume these very complicated uh, bits of evidence as if they are watching a drama. And I think Noah's right. They're going to fasten on the hurling ketchup bottle, the grabbing the wheel of the of the car, the, the sort of dramatic moments that aren't necessarily central to the story of 
potential criminal behavior that the commission's trying to tell. And in that sense, it detracts from their ability to do that. And um, I'll add to that that she, you know, you're right that she can she can talk about things she heard from other people. This isn't a courtroom. But when we when we get down to uh, questions questions about whether others who've testified before the commission are going to counteract what she claims she did and what she heard, then the credibility issues become even more important. It was very powerful, though, in terms of people who haven't been paying attention are now going, wait a minute, we're flipping the, the standard, the burden here. It used to be, well, you can't actually prove that he knew the, the mob was dangerous and he incited them. And uh, to, to pardon my David Frenchism, I think he put it brilliantly in, in his recent newsletter. He said, now we know that any talk of, oh, they're going to be peaceful, please don't start a riot, is pro forma ass covering on the part of Trump. Because he's we've, we've seen now that actually there was a lot more incitement than there was calming the crowd. So we can look at um, uh, Abe, we can look at uh, Hutchison's testimony in a couple of ways, one of which is, OK, it's a single person. She's recounting under oath a series of things that happened um, that is not a high enough standard to meet for, you know, indictment uh, uh, on criminal charges of seditious conspiracy or uh, encouraging violence, um, which is a very high, there's a very high standard according to the Supreme Court on on what things people say or do that are actually can be in which they can be accused uh, or they can properly be uh, held responsible for violence that took place after their words were spoken. That's the Glucksburg Supreme Court decision. Um, But what it represents is the first on the record sworn testimony from inside the White House. And the question that this raises is, was this all bait? I mean, First of all, we don't know why she flipped. She wasn't going to testify in public. Then she apparently changed lawyers and decided to testify in public. And they wanted to bring her up as soon as possible because of fears of her about her security and not waiting until July, which is what they had wanted to do. Um, that uh, by bringing her up, we now have an on the record sworn witness to behavior in the White House and on the ellipse. Um, And given that it is sworn, uh, it stands until other sworn testimony comes up that contradicts it. Now we have, for example, last night, there was a weird moment when Liz Cheney put up a slide, which was a picture of of a piece of memo paper that said chief of staff on it, meaning Meadows's paper uh, with notes about what a speech should say. And Cheney said to Cassidy Hutchison, is this your handwriting? And she said, that's my handwriting. Well, last night, uh, Trump lawyer, Eric Hirschman, um, who people who are following this closely will remember was the guy who in very, um, plain spoken terms told uh, told the uh, potentially insurgent attorney general candidate uh, Jeffrey wait, Clark to shut up and go away and get yourself a lawyer, though he said it in much, much more basic terms. So he is not a January 6th truther. And he said, this is nonsense. I wrote that note. His, he, he released a statement last night saying he wrote the note. And then we have these two Secret Service agents who tell 
everybody last night that her account of what happened inside uh, inside Trump's car was false, that Trump never put his hand on anybody, though the the events seem to jibe with the record, which is that Trump wanted to go to the Capitol and for some reason or other, the Secret Service prevented him from doing so, meaning said, we cannot guarantee your safety. We're going back to the West Wing. Now, here's what's interesting about that anecdote, which is, oh, my God, you know, Jeff, Jeff Tubin, fresh from getting washing his hands after uh, being on the Zoom outside the outside the CNN studio, said, you know, well, you know, Trump is not is, is in danger because he put his hands on a, on a Secret Service officer. I mean, that's ridiculous. The interesting question is, why didn't the Secret Service obey the, you know, if the president said, take me to the Capitol, what right do they have not to take him to the Capitol? Like, that, that's a weird part of the story is, you know, uh, he, he's the boss. It's his car. You know, this would be like your taxi driver saying, I'm sorry, sir, I can't guarantee your safety. Now, it's not like a taxi driver. That's not fair. But you know what I'm saying? So these two Secret Service agents and a deputy White House chief of staff. It's a but yeah, it, it's a weird situation, but it's it's also I mean, historically unique in a sense. I mean, so it's hard to say that that the fact that it's so strange may or may not cast doubt on the account of it. I mean, when has there been a president saying, no, no, steer me into this violent mob? Right. Um, uh, well, I know, think who well, knows I how think to it happens more often than you may realize. Like there's actually a joke about this in the American president made in 1995, which is that you know, the president's in the in the limo and he I, I know this is a movie, but but it, but it reflects something real where, you know, he's dating someone. He's a widower. He's dating someone. He says, I just want to hop out and get flowers on my way to the date. And Michael J. Fox, who's his assistant, says, no, no hopping, sir. No hopping. Like you can see where a president might say, I want to get out and say hello to the crowd. And then the Secret that Service says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. But, you know, but that that's not safe. Right. But. I don't know okay. that that's this, though. I mean, th this. Right. this was well, there was that time when the president made that walk across Lafayette Park in the middle of a riot to go in front of the church. Now, we've subsequently learned from U.S. Park Police that Trump himself didn't order the clearing out of that riot. But the sequence of events is rather clear. You have to clear out the riot before the president can make a move. Well, I mean, again, I actually he, ended the riot, I suppose. Yeah. Can I just I just want to make a point about the, the handwriting issue and about the Secret Service. Um, Regarding the handwriting thing, um, I think it's a it's a very it, it's a really sort of telling. It could be a really telling detail uh, on which her testimony hangs because it's one thing to misremember what someone else did or what someone else said or to misattribute um, uh, something that was done or said um, between two other people. Oh, oh, he said it. I thought she said it to say I did it. Uh, uh, and then it may have turned out that you didn't do it to say I wrote it to look at a piece. Handwriting is an extraordinarily personal thing. You can recognize your yeah. own hand handwriting when you see others, you, you know, it's someone else's handwriting. Um, that is a sort of very robust it. If, in fact, it's not true, right. that is a very robust demonstration of of a lie. Um, and so there's a lot on the line with that. The second point I just want to make regards to Secret Service. Um, I don't. 
I thought about what happened, what the what was alleged yesterday um, regarding um, Trump laying his hands on the Secret Service and going after the jugular and, and grabbing the steering wheel. And I sat with him and I thought for a while it would be extremely hard to get Secret Service personnel, even if it did happen, to come and say something about the president that would harm the president and clear them. Their entire purpose, their, their, their sort of the, the ethos that they live by is to sacrifice their own well-being on behalf of the president. Um, so okay, I, so, I have an answer. Right. Okay. So I, I sort of half expected that that whatever the actual case was, we weren't going to hear anyone from Secret Service say, "Yes, the president attacked me." Okay. One of the, the Secret Service agent who is reported to have been in this tussle testified before the committee. Robert Engel. I mean, they have sworn testimony from Robert Engel. We don't know what that testimony said. Our presumption. One's presumption must be that unless the committee is deranged, that Cassidy Hutchison's account was not contradicted by Robert Engel in his sworn testimony. Because first of all, they didn't need that story. I mean, it's a very graphic story. It has actually very little to do with, unless what you're trying to do is establish that Trump had somehow crossed into psychosis that day and therefore that was some kind of narrative explanation for why everything went so haywire so fast but um if he said if he said it didn't happen or or gave a different or whatever maybe they didn't know to ask um it would be crazy for them to have brought this up now it is possible that that happened because they did this very fast. And maybe they didn't dot all the I's and cross the T's. And maybe the credibility of this entire narrative is pretty impeachable. But it's going to have to be impeached. It can't be impeached by somebody telling Peter Alexander of NBC News that that didn't happen that way. Someone is going to have to come up and swear under oath that it didn't happen that way voluntarily or and this is the second step or what's going on here represents a breaking of the dam merrick garland the attorney general of the united states is already under pressure from democrats to come up with a criminal indictment of trump for his behavior on january 6th if he impanels a grand jury the grand jury can compel all this testimony in a way that the House can't. The only, that, yeah. the, okay. The only, say, go ahead, go ahead, Christine. I was going to say that, but that's the key point, right? And Noah alluded to it at the, at, at the beginning of the podcast. This could, this is an elaborate, not a trap, that's the wrong word, but it's an elaborate baiting of the people who the com the commission really wants to have testify. So in a way, it's almost like, but but I think there's a huge risk to this. I think the risk is, you're right, John, she didn't need to have these weird dramatic details. The danger of this sort of televised drama that they're putting on is uh, hyperbole will undermine the, the uh, 
acceptability and and the integrity of some of these witnesses testimony, hers included, if it's proved. But they want to get Meadows in the chair. They want to get these guys in front of them and ask them questions and have them either plead the fifth or or say something that, that contradicts their. Well, Liz Cheney well, wants to wants there to be indictments. She's not made any bones about that. Right. Frankly, she's tipped her hand. She's refused to corroborate uh, Benny Thompson when he said we're not seeking indictments. She said we're not there yet. Yesterday, she tweeted a David French piece, which is talking about the extent to which much of this is probably indictable, which was really poor judgment in my view. Um, if this was uh, on, on Liz Cheney's part, you mean not yes. on David's part. If this was improvisatory and the committee was sort of blindsided by this information, I thought they had all, all this teed up in part because they showed for no other purpose than to corroborate the story about the SUV of an image of Donald Trump getting in the SUV, suggesting they likely anticipated the armchair forensic analysis of the presidential limo versus an SUV. We had this cycle of talking about automotive engineering, like anybody knows what the hell they're talking about. Um, but I su it su suggested to me that they anticipated this sort of backlash and they were prepared to admit it. And, you know, just as another aside, sort of the, the dramaturgy of the event, they did some dirty pool with Mike Flynn yesterday for whom I have no sympathy and have the lowest possible regard. Um, but they uh, showed him taking the fifth when he was asked about whether he supports the um, peaceful transfer of power, which is part of the oath of office you take. Uh, and everybody's like, well, that's a weird thing to take the fifth to. And it is, but you're taking the fifth to everything as a matter of course. So just to include that as an indictment effort to indict his character in ways that you don't have to reach to indict his character. So it was just okay, kind I of ugly. Okay, I want to talk about that because I just very briefly want to disagree with you. So what you're talking about is the standard, according to which, which was actually set during both the HUAC, Council on American Activities hearings, and the Mafia hearings in the late 40s and early 50s, that if you take the fifth, but then you choose to answer, you pick and choose which questions you are going to answer, you can then actually be held in contempt for taking the fifth right. on the grounds that it's one thing to say you will not answer any questions. And it's another to say you get to pick and choose which questions you're going to answer. So as a result, there is the standard, which is you have to take the fifth to everything. However, that doesn't mean you get a free pass for taking the fifth to everything. When you are asked, do you believe in the peaceful train? You are, you are the, the, the consequence of taking the fifth in a, it's a situation like that is precisely that the world is going to know that you won't do things like say, is your name, you know, Salvatore Buon Giovanno, and then you say, I take the fifth, that you're going to look like a jerk and like you're hiding something. And that's the consequence. You can't be prosecuted. They can't hold you in contempt, but you don't get a free pass for refusing to answer legitimate questions being asked you by a congressional committee. So that's where I'm, I'm disagreeing with you on the dirty pool. Maybe it's dirty pool. It's dirty pool that is that has a long history. The dirty pool could be Mike Flynn taking the fifth, by the way. Um, anyway, here's my. Regardless of her credibility. What I'm saying is until other witnesses impeach her with their testimony we have to assume that her testimony is accurate. So yeah, that's what Christine is saying. That's the trolling, that's the bait. And let's say Meadows and Cipollone wanna come forward and say, we never said this, we never said that, we never said the other thing. Then the question is, well, what did you say? 
And what they've done so far is say, I can't tell you that because of executive privilege. And if they answer some of the questions and they don't answer the others, they will be held in contempt of Congress. And at that hearing, they will be arrested and taken into custody. So the stakes have just gotten very, very high. Either they let her testimony stand, thus implicitly essentially acknowledging its truth, or they have to come forward and say what it was that she said that was wrong and was untruthful. And then they have to answer questions about what was truthful and what did happen, which is what they've been refusing to do on the on the grounds of executive privilege. And the point about executive privilege is it's a choice, it's not a requirement. Trump asserts executive privilege, they, they say they have to abide by the rule of executive privilege, but there are no consequences for them not abiding by the rule of executive privilege. That's, that's, well, uh, yeah, this, is, this is where the issue of witness tampering should should be uh, raised because uh, that's another bit of uh, sort of pretty dramatic evidence that the, the commission was discussing yesterday, including the fact that it appears that one of the one of the uh, uh, sort of thinly veiled threats that was issued was issued directly to Hutchinson. So we have we have a very and John, I think you said on our text, you're like, this is like a bad remake of The Godfather. I mean, you have. Trump and his allies leaning on people who can say stuff, corroborate stuff, or who might uh, break this executive privilege compact uh, by saying, you know, we know you're loyal. We know you're going to be loyal. I mean, the kind of cheesy, but actually, but if you're in that position, much subtler in The Godfather, <laughs> right? In The Godfather, what they do to get <laughs> Frankie Five Angels silence is they just place his brother in his line of sight, exactly. flying his brother from Sicily and just right. sit him there. So that he knows he'll be disgraced on the on the you know on the principle of never of of, of violating omerta, um, and then Frankie Five Angels goes off and commits suicide. Right. Um, There's no horse's head in anyone's bed yet. But right. Like the, yeah. the, but the idea right. that I mean, threatening a witness who's been called before Congress is a very serious thing. And so there right. we should add that that actually lends credence to the idea that the the pleas for uh, abiding by executive privilege uh, by Meadows uh, are just a way to cover. Not not have to come up and, and talk about any of this. Right. Um, so in some senses, the whole point is that this hearing has been taken to the next level. Stakes have just gotten higher. We have a narrative of what went on in the White House that says a witness has said that Cipollone and Meadows say Trump doesn't care. He thinks Mike deserves having people coming after him with the intention to hang him. And that he uh, said he didn't care if the crowd was armed uh, because it wasn't coming to harm him. Let the magnetometers go and then they can march to the Capitol. The obvious a predicate to that being that they would be marching to the Capitol with the weapons that he didn't care that they had. Until that is refuted. In other words, there's meat to be put on those bones by a grand jury. It's only one witness. Maybe Meadows and Sibylla can come forward, blow her out of the water, say none of that happened. Then she's the one who is at risk of being prosecuted for perjury on a sworn statement. But until that happens, uh, you know, there's also the January 5th meeting. 
meeting right. and phone call, which we right. haven't talked we should, about. We should talk about the January 5th meeting. But before I do that, I want to talk to you about Bolin brand sheets, the best organic cotton threads on earth, 100% superior softness, better night's sleep. They're not just buttery, breathable, and impossibly comfortable. They get softer with every wash. Uh, you'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets, 100% free from toxins, no pesticides, formaldehyde, or other harsh chemicals. They fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Bull & Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. Look, forget thread count. Bull & Branch gives you thread quality. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible. So go and get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at bolandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And again, I'm talking to you about our friend David Bonson and his book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. You know, it's interesting. Last couple of days, there are weird penumbras and emanations in the world of um, macroeconomics saying that eh, maybe inflation isn't as much of a problem as we realize. There may be deflationary things going on where inventories are building up. And when inventories build up, that, of course, means that eventually prices are going to have to fall because people are going to have to sell off their inventories. And this is something that uh, David Bonson has been watching like a hawk. The question of whether or not we are in an inflationary spiral Pre in in the present moment, but <clears throat> excuse me, in a in a historical secular deflationary period like Japan, how does that work? Very complicated to explain, but the principles undergirding why that might be and the economic rules that would explain how this happened are very much explored in his stunning book. There's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths. That's David Bonson, B A H N S E N. He knows wherever he speaks. He manages three and a half billion dollars in investor money and puts his uh, puts his money where his mouth is and puts his theories where where they they get real world tests every day. So that's there's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths by David Bonson. Get it at your fine bookstores today. Okay, the January fifth meeting or the January fifth behavior of the inside the White House involves. Who talked to Roger Stone, former Trump intimate, uh, re recipient of a pardon uh, after his conviction, and Mike Flynn, former national security advisor, also recipient of a pardon, uh, and they were helping to coordinate the January 6th rally. And Hutchison said that Trump told Meadows to talk to Stone and uh, Flynn, who were in a suite at the Willard Hotel, which overlooks where the, uh, where the rally was going to happen, and that Meadows was going to go to the Willard Hotel to talk to them personally. She says, she said, don't do that. That's, you shouldn't do that. That's not becoming of the White House Chief of Staff. But then he talked to them on the phone. Now, we have no idea what he said in the conversation on the phone. Uh, but that, that's, that's that. So, Noah, what do you make of that? Well, we don't know. I don't know what to right. make of that. Nobody knows what to make of that. That's the problem. Is the committee's been teeing up this notion that there was some coordination between the president's 
close staff, senior level staff, and intermediaries between the White House's high-level staff and the Proud Boys who executed um, plans to have to not, this wasn't a spontaneous event in the committee's telling. There were shock troops, there were lookouts, there were scouts, there were people who deliberately led the crowd on. There wasn't coordinated effort to, to incite a riot through direct action. Uh, and that coordination they have implied, have not established, implied that it went through these people who are sort of uh, in high orbit around Donald Trump, deniable, plausibly deniable connections to Donald Trump, which we all know to be Roger Stone and likely Mike Flynn. Um, and this would be the missing link. Again, all implication, nothing has been established. But if we want to establish this or refute it, Mark Meadows has to testify. So we're back to the question of whether or not this either purposefully or or just by happenstance um, is the great is the bait, right? That's Christine's point, that the whole thing is about getting Mark Meadows and Pat Cipollone to testify. And um, clearly it would be better for the Republic if they did. Uh, this hearing is not illegitimate. I mean, they can't testify if there's no way that they can testify <laughs> at this point. They can't do so without implicating themselves, exposing themselves criminally um, one way or the other. I mean, there's, well, there's unless they, they appear on the stand and plead the fifth, at which point, what's the point in testifying? Well, and isn't Meadows already under in contempt and the DOJ is pursuing the contempt of Congress charge against him? Is that isn't that correct? Like they're already in some trouble. <laughs> is that right? I'm, that, I, I'm some, sorry. Somebody, if I don't. somebody had a contempt of Congress charge against well, him that, yeah, that they're pursuing i could be wrong it might not be meadows but, but you know someone else <laughs> we keep talking about meadows and cipollone in the same way they're they're not actually uh cast in the same uh sort of mold here uh cipollone seems to have done the right thing every step of the way right but he's in, he's but i don't he's think he's been subpoenaed i know has he been subpoenaed because he, i believe he's right he's Mark been meadows in right. meadows has been has been yes. held in contempt and Cipollone was negotiating with the committee, actively negotiating, probably just to stave this off. So I, I look, I don't know. I don't know where this goes. I honestly don't. What I do know is that one way or another, Trump is, a, is in a lot more jeopardy than he was before she testified. Now, as I say, it could be that she's a fabulist and a fantasist and some of this was made up and some of this was well, wildly self-aggrandized. And that a lot of it was a lot more of it was here's things that she says she overheard directly, which is not hearsay. The only thing that she testified to that was hearsay was what was going on in the in the in the limo. Everything else is stuff that she personally witnessed, which does not quite that does not count as hearsay. And if you want proof of that and you don't want to take my word for it, go read Andy McCarthy's amazingly detailed post. Uh, at nationalreview.com about Cassidy Hutchinson. But this is all testimony. why it's so very annoying, because this is not a courtroom. There is no judge to determine what is admissible and inadmissible. So we go back and forth between playing courtroom rules and not courtroom rules, and all of a sudden it's court of opinion, and then, wait a minute, no, that's that's uh, that's uh, perjury, you know, objection. That's the sort of thing, you can't go back and forth with this. No, you can't it's in a this congressional sense. It's all a question here. of being fair. In, in that sense, all these things are about being fair. So in this sense, he, she, what she heard and what she was part of 
is equalized with what she was told and didn't witness personally. And that's not fair if, in fact, there is other evidence. Can I also uh, ask, yeah. what is the, I, I'm curious if you guys think this has also changed the kind of end game for the commission, both what they think they should be doing, what their end goal is, and what the American public wants and what the partisans want. And by that, I mean, if they are now convinced that they, they sh- that their work will be complete if they can get a criminal indictment of Trump, then that kind of shifts what they had originally said, which is we, we're on this fact-finding mission to reveal what really happened. We need to know. Um, and, and there's a lot of political risk with that, as Noah alluded to earlier, with some of the things Cheney's been saying recently. Or is it that they want to prevent and or if they can't get the criminal indictment, are they still trying to prevent Trump from being the nominee in 2024, which from a political standpoint is this is where I think it's a double edged sword, because you could see him doubling down on I'm look at me, the total martyr thing, which he's been doing every time he makes a public appearance. And this could weirdly get him reelected if they can't get the criminal indictment in a way that perhaps he he wouldn't have been quite as popular because he wouldn't have been victimized, supposedly by the commission. I would say there are it has now has three purposes. One purpose is to establish what happened on January 6th, how far back it went, and what what they can lay out about how this singular event in American history happened for the historical record. So that's the report. The second is, based on that, to make recommendations about legislation that can be passed at the federal level. And that has to happen pretty quickly. I think if they actually want to do this before November. No, exactly, exactly. Right. But uh, to secure elections against something, I don't know what this means, by the way, but, you know, it's like the elections now have been governed by this piece of legislation passed in 1887 that created the process by which Mike Pence ended up, you know, the, the vice president accepts the electors ballots and and then counts them or whatever, and then and then declares the you know the official winner of the election. Um, that's based on that piece of legislation. Maybe that needs to be overhauled and fixed in some fashion. Don't again, don't ask me what that is. So that's very that's kind of technical, but giving advice to Congress on what legislation should be passed to ensure that this event doesn't recur. And then the third is obviously to nail Trump. And there are two ways you can nail Trump, one of which is you can get him indicted and uh, and convicted. And of course, if he's convicted, he goes to jail. He can't be president ever again. Um, or you nail him by ruining his reputation uh, in American public opinion, which seems like a bigger stretch. Although you don't know, because remember, the whole issue with him getting reelected in 2024 involves whether or not the independents who voted for him in 2016 and then fled him in 2024 in 2020 would come back to him in 2024 and being reminded of the things that they found distasteful about him that made them flip their votes is probably a pretty sound strategy, although it is happening two years before the election and may not, you know, carry on. So um, but I just want to say it's it's very high stakes for Democrats here because uh, the other part of the equation is that if Trump sort of slips out of this, as he has slipped out of uh, so many other things, um, it not only bolsters sort of his his perpetual complaints that he has been the victim of an unceasing witch hunt and that it's all fake, 
but it also will um, cast Democrats, even though uh, uh, Liz Cheney is, is so deeply involved in this, will cast Democrats as bumbling, overreaching, um, failing yet again. There's also the fact that I think I think that's an important point, and and it speaks a little bit to John the question you said: Will those voters go back to him that had turned against him earlier? And I actually do not have a lot of confidence that he'll get those same people back. Because remember, the most appealing part of his message to people who wouldn't otherwise have voted for a Republican for president was, you know, the system has screwed you, you you suffered a lot. I'm your champion. I'm going to bring back all these things that were taken away from you by the other guys. And you know, I'm I'm that's his sort of appeal as a populist messenger. Well, all he wants to talk about now is how the system screwed him. And when and that might work at a time of prosperity. But when people are still suffering economically from inflation, high gas prices and a kind of unsettled feeling that the country's going in the wrong direction, even if he's up against someone as bumbling as Joe Biden, that message is going to annoy people. It's not going to appeal to them. Now, we should say when we say needs these people to come back that, you know, one of the unheralded aspects of the 2020 election is it's not like Trump, Trump's vote total declined. He got 11 million more votes in 2020 than he got in 2016. Now that's also because something like 5% of the electorate in 2016 wouldn't vote for him and sort of went to libertarian, whoever they could vote for that they that they couldn't vote for before. And they probably just went with Trump because whatever that third party vote was, a very large third party vote. Um, there was like 6%, uh, you know, it was 48, 46 Hillary and Trump and, and basically uh, you know, that four, there was, there were, what is that? Uh, there were 6% of the voters who voted for other parties. Um, nonetheless, I mean, it's not like he hasn't been able to, he wasn't able to rally voters and troops, but he didn't rally them in the right places. And particularly in, you know, these three States, uh, in the suburban areas in the three States that determined the election, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia, suburbanites fled him the suburbanites who fled him in 2018 so is this a reminder of that yes is it too far back from the election to be effectual i i I don't know and we're talking about the high stakes and i think we've been properly skeptical of uh or, or properly cautious about assuming that what cassidy hutchison said was true whether she's a wonderfully credible witness or not. I mean, Christine Blasey Ford was a very credible witness, except she made it all up, as far as I can tell. Or some, or Brett Kavanaugh's role in whatever happened to her was made up, but she was very credible. It was in much the same way, very steely, quiet, understated, reserved, unemotional, mostly unemotional, um, so that the power of her testimony came forward. But um, so we're, I think, you know, we can't just take her at her word. But again, you can only not take her at her word if somebody doesn't say in an authoritative way that it, you know, that it didn't happen. Um, and uh, and that's the that's where we go forward. Let's pull back just for a couple of minutes that we have remaining and talk about what happened in the primaries uh, last night um, around the country. Um, and here, I think we should focus on the state of Colorado because something very interesting happened in Colorado. Uh, Colorado, a state, a purple state, you know, that has Democrats and Repu- went, had a Republican senator as late as 2014, a Republican governor, then went very, went 
uh, sort of very democratic. Now it's Democrat, two Democratic senators, Democratic governor, um, uh, and has a has a really serious social conservative Trumpian rump in the Republican Party. But Republican voters yesterday decided to turn their backs on the Trump uh, crazies and go with electable candidates. One in the Secretary of State race, where a person who's actually been like is under indictment for having tampered with election machines, Tina Peters, was trying to get herself in charge of the elections in the state of Colorado. And then a senator, a senator, a Senate candidate. Um, the moderate who won, you know, we now call him moderate. I'm sure he's a very conservative Republican. He's just not, you know, an, a steal the, the an election steal guy. Um, apparently has some exceptions on a board, believes in some exceptions on 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 a total pro life stance. And they both won. And why this is interesting is that there's a real shot that if you have the right candidate in the Colorado Senate race, that that candidate can beat Michael Bennett, the, the senator who was up for re-election. And, and can I just add for the, oh, we care so much about democracy, this was another race where the Democratic uh, PACs were throwing huge amounts of money at the MAGA candidate to try to, to make him uh, succeed because he would be seen as a weaker candidate against Bennett. And again, I this drives me absolutely crazy. I do. You cannot listen to anything the Democratic Party says about caring about the integrity of our institutions or the integrity of democracy when what they do is throw money at the most extreme right wing candidates because they know that those guys might be an easier candidate for theirs to compete against. It is absolutely uh it's appalling, quite frankly. I think it's I think it's terrible. And they're doing it in races all over the country. This was one of them, though, where you're right, John. The voters were like, we don't want the crazy MAGA guy. We want the one who makes more sense to us as voters. And yeah, this kind of extra, I'm sorry. Say, sorry. That's appalling in two ways. Um, the first is that if they're so sure that the more MAGA candidate isn't electable, then everything they're saying about the Republican Party being wholly in the hands of MAGA is, is untrue. And it's um, also repugnant in that maybe they shouldn't be so sure that the MAGA candidate isn't um, uh, uh, electable because then they're playing with fire. Yeah, That's both of those. Uh, and there's mixed results in that regard. Um, first of all, these are Democratic strategists, all of whom you know overthink everything. And we don't know the extent to which they have their you know, they're hand in glove with elected representatives, specifically, especially at the federal level. But we can't assume they're not. Certainly, uh, they could be reined in if Democrats really wanted to. So, yeah, there was a lot of money put behind um, state rep Ron Hanks in Colorado over Joe O'Dea, who ended up winning this primary race. And the strategy is, is pretty brilliant. I mean, they're like, this guy is too conservative for Colorado. Wink, wink, wink. Uh, lending him some credentials. Uh, so voters saw past that in Colorado, but they didn't in Illinois. Uh, where the Democratic Governors Association, national committee level, uh, spent millions of dollars to uh, beat Il Aurora, Illinois' first black mayor, a veteran guy named Richard Irvin, who was the rational candidate in the race. They went with state Senator Darren Bailey, who is nothing short of a conspiracy theorist um, who sacrifices perhaps a winnable race in, in Illinois. Uh, you can see it's, it's unlikely, but Republicans have won the state house there in the past, and especially in good years. So you know, mixed results for this one between between Darren Bailey and Doug Mastriano. The strategy of elevating MAGA candidates over conventional candidates at the state level uh, has more a, a more winning record than a not than a losing record. 
Fair enough. I just think it's interesting because in terms of what goes on in Washington, Colorado really wasn't on the map as a as a contesting as a state that Republicans were seriously going to contest in November, and it is now on the map. And that, of course, complicates matters for Democrats in terms of defending their zero seat majority uh, in in the Senate if they then now have to spend 50 to 100 million dollars trying to save Michael Bennett's seat. Meanwhile, there is also a very good Republican candidate in the state of Washington came out of nowhere, parents rights person. Uh, you know, there's a lot of ferment going on, although we you know all we hear about is the rally and the rise of the Trump people. And we're, you know, had this crazy appearance by Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake on on Brett Baer's show, uh, reminding us that, you know, it really is kind of bananas what what now passes for serious candidates in important states. Um, but uh, but a lot of that is, you know, it was obscured because that's what Democrats want to talk about, what the media wants to talk about of those people. And uh, the truth is that uh, Democrats are still in a disastrous shape heading into 2022. And as Noah has been pointing out to me and a little bit to us, early evidence, the first pieces of evidence that we have are that uh, the Dobbs decision and the, you know, the culture war that is igniting again over abortion at the electoral level is not yet, is has not in the immediate aftermath of, of the result has not moved the needle very much at all. I mean, a couple of points in three polls toward Democrats on the generic ballot <clears throat> and a bit of a lift for Joe Biden on his approval rating, but these are not wholesale shifts. You know, two points in three polls, uh, you know, it's when you do that, it's like, well, you can't just say it's the margin of error, but that's two points. It's not 10 points. It's not 12 points. It's actually a lot worse than that. <laughs> okay. I think Democrat, I'm going to write about this today because I think we're going to need a national suicide hotline for Democrats if this continues in this direction. National poll, Monmouth University, very reputable pollster. You know, when you poll Roe v. Wade, it's a 60-40 issue. And that's interpreted generally to mean that most Americans nationally don't want abortion illegal. They want restrictions to a certain degree. Most of it suggests around the 15th week. But they don't want they like a national standard that at least precludes a full scale ban. Right. That's the general interpretation. National Monmouth poll. Forty six percent say Congress should pass a national law allowing abortions. Forty four percent say let's let the states decide um, that 44 percent makes sense. That 46 percent sure doesn't. If there if people want a national standard, they're not saying it in this poll. Likewise, yesterday's, um, this is from the New York Times, very early analysis of last night's results. But as of this week, a full week in the post-Row world, um, unaffiliated voters had returned more ballots for Republican primaries than Democratic ones. There was no turnout surge yesterday, uh, suggesting that this boost of enthusiasm that we're seeing, particularly in the online environment and suggested in these national uh, generic ballot polls is not materializing on the ground, not yet. Interesting times we live in. So we will be back tomorrow for a Christina Noam John Pod Horitz. Keep the candle burning.